You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a research fellow at the Program on Strengthening U.S.-India Relations at the Hoover Institute and a research fellow in the Rule of Law Program at Stanford Law School. Holding a Ph.D. from Princeton University, his research focuses on the political economy of development, with a special focus on India and South Asia. Ironically enough, he is also one of the pioneers of the Rule of Non-Law Project at Stanford Law School. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Din Chemistry. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about some of your research projects. Sure. Uh, so we've been working on a number of projects uh, at Hoover recently looking at U.S.-India relations, uh, broadly defined, uh, obviously with a, a lot of what's happening in, in the larger geopolitical uh, dimensions. Uh, we're thinking about uh, how those specific sorts of actions are uh, affecting relations, things like uh, what's happening in Ukraine right now, the uh, uh, growing power of China. Uh, but we're also looking specifically at India and thinking about how Indian foreign policy itself is changing. For the most part, uh, over the last, I would say, several decades, foreign policy in India has really been determined by a very small group of people, very deep within the Indian government, usually really steeped in ideology. Uh, that's been changing uh, and we're looking at the different voices, the different outside actors that are playing a bigger role in shaping U.S.-India relations. I've also got a lot of work on higher education right now, Indian higher education. We're looking at the role that meritocracy plays and uh, good management practices play in producing good educational outcomes, both in terms of learning as well as in terms of research. And then I've got some on-the-ground work in India looking at uh, various aspects of education, uh, things like the uh, economic returns to learning English, how we can teach people about misinformation and digital literacy, and how we can uh, encourage good public health practices on the ground. So that's the, that's the gamut of what's going on right now. Okay. Um, so I wanted to start off today by talking to you about your research on the importance on the necessity of meritocracy, um, especially in developing countries such as India. So Dr. Mystery, could you please tell us a bit more about this research and its findings? Of course. Yeah. Uh, so one of the biggest challenges that we see across public administration, across education, across even the private sector is that hiring and promotions are oftentimes done on things that rely on aspects other than merit. Oftentimes it's, oh, my friend is, is this person so you can get a job there. Oh, uh, uh, you're related to this person so you can get promoted there. Or, oh, you've been with the company so long, just you've been here for 15 years, you're just automatically going to be promoted. Uh, those kinds of practices tend to be very uh, deleterious for uh, both for institutional health in terms of how people feel about their organizations, but also in terms of what those institutions can produce. What you want is you want organizations uh, where the uh, incentives for the people being brought in are keen on delivering for those, for those organizations. So we were looking at higher education specifically in India, uh, and we were looking at what aspects could lead to that, what political aspects could lead to that. Typically, what you want is you want a university that has a relative uh, degree of autonomy, independence from political processes. Uh, autonomy alone, however, doesn't really get you to that promised land. 
you also want to have a culture that supports uh, merit, an internal culture that uh, sort of maintains accountability and promotes merit. Uh, then you tend to get really good outcomes. So we were looking at Indian higher education. Some of the world's best universities uh, are based in India. We get a number of talented undergraduates, uh, several hundred actually, coming to Stanford uh, from India, from these top universities. At the same time, you've got universities where uh, professors don't show up to teach. You can buy grades. You can even buy sometimes whole degrees without showing up. Uh, those are really big problems. Uh, so I was trying to understand why we see this kind of variation. And meritocracy seems to explain why we see that. Leadership, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starfleet Leadership Academy. Its ongoing mission to develop leaders through Star Trek. To boldly go where no podcast has gone before. A leadership development podcast told through the lens of Star Trek. The Starfleet Leadership Academy. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Right. Um, and that's 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 really interesting. And I think that's quite a good segue into um, the, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, um, which is the rule of non-law project at Stanford Law. Yeah. Um, so myself, as, as someone who's spent quite a bit of time in India, I'm all too familiar with the prevalence of bribery and corruption that plagues so many institutions, um, which can be difficult to understand for most of us in the West. Um, so firstly, I wanted to understand why such practices have become commonplace in India and so many developing nations alike. Now, obviously, one could argue that in an environment where so many people live in a state of privation, that personal gain takes precedence over upholding the rule of law out of sheer necessity alone. But even as India has become exponentially richer over the past few day, decades, um, bribery and corruption are still um, part of the way business is done. So what might be behind this? That's a great question. Uh, this is something that I've been scratching my head over for decades now. Actually, I had, a, I think, probably, I'm guessing, a similar upbringing to you. Uh, the reason why I got interested in studying Indian politics, I grew up in the U.S., but I'd spend my summers going to India. <clears throat> and it was just, to me, it was always a, a head scratcher. Why, why is life so different in one country versus the other? It sounds sort of naive, uh, but I was always wondering this. And one time, I remember I met a family friend in India. He had actually become the number two person at World Bank. And this was, gosh, this must have been in the late 1990s. Uh, so I went over to his house. And we were chatting and he said, do you know what the one problem is that holds back development? And back then I just, you know, I was guessing anything I could say, macroeconomics, uh, you know, education, uh, infrastructure. And he said, no, 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 those are all good guesses. But the one thing that really causes us problems is corruption. Uh, corruption just slows down the system. It doesn't make things work. Uh, it causes all these kinds of problems. Uh, if you can figure out how to reduce corruption or control corruption, or even mitigate the, the negative effects of corruption, then a lot of good things can come. And uh, that got me particularly interested in this topic, bribery and corruption, what can be done about it. Uh, and so I ended up going, at the time I was studying at MIT, you know, kids in my undergraduate class were inventing billion dollar companies and solving, you know, coming up with cures for various stages of cancer, they were all looking for really hard problems. And this seems like a particularly hard problem. Uh, how can you actually address corruption? So I started studying it, went and got a PhD trying to figure it out. Uh, I think we have good ideas now and we have some, uh, you know, uh, stronger practices in place. It just turns out to be such a hard problem. It's uh, at the time where this World Bank person was looking at it, he used to say that 
on the ground corruption actually wasn't that bad for the most part, petty corruption in the 60s and 70s. It wasn't that common for police officers to ask for bribes and things like that. He said grand corruption was a big problem. Today, if you go to India, I mean, it's it's in many places, it's as blatant as it can be, and it's unpredictable. I've got a small cafe that I uh, operated until about two or three weeks ago uh, in Delhi, and we had to shut it down just because so many people just kept coming through for bribes. We couldn't make any kind of a business plan. Uh, so that's sort of the the uh, 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 non-structured answer here for what can be done about it. Uh, I think in general, there are a lot of steps that have to happen. We have to think about education. Uh, we have to think about uh, stronger institutions that can be used to reduce corruption, even in some cases, stronger laws. Believe it or not, uh, both bribery laws in the US and in India suffer from some similar deficiencies uh, that need to be improved uh, to address corruption in both places, I would argue. Uh, and we also have to think about uh, just generally how we can promote a society we meaning both US and India, Indian actors, uh, how we can promote a society and an economy that doesn't lean on that as a, as a form of business uh, advantage. A lot of companies uh, really take great advantage uh, from this system, the, the problems in the system. Uh, they can use it to their own personal benefit without the, uh, with causing suffering to a lot of other people. So it's a, it's a great challenge right now. So, I mean, I can I can understand how the, the, the culture of of corruption would have developed in, in countries like India and in developing countries, um, like I mentioned, just, you know, out of out of sheer necessity. Um, but I, I think um, we, we saw I, I just trying to I'm just trying to understand why um, this sort of thing, you know, n- never really took root in the United States. Well, I mean, uh, of course it did, but it, it didn't really remain part of, of like the mainstream c- culture and the way business is done. Um, and, and we didn't see that happening in India um, as it got richer. So why why did it not happen in so many other countries? And why does it continue in India? Is there something something um, different about the way that the institutions are set up that that facilitate this? Definitely. That's a great question. So actually in the U.S., as you probably know, uh, we did have a a corruption problem. And at high levels, depending on how you define corruption, some would still argue that we do have uh, at least a grand corruption problem. That's what it's in the literature. It's oftentimes called uh, petty corruption is oftentimes contrasted with grand corruption. Petty corruption is the, the cop taking a bribe on the street or somebody taking money for grades, as I alluded to earlier. Grand corruption is where you might have uh, uh, inappropriate lobbying or something like that, uh, influencing much larger deals. Those are two different kinds of corruption. In the U.S., we had both forms of corruption uh, through the 1800s uh, and well into the early 1900s. Uh, a lot of institutional change happened around uh, the turn of the century, uh, both at the national and at state levels, which is uh, uh, really exciting stuff, actually, for people who are interested in, in just U.S. history and probably potentially gives a roadmap for uh, for how other countries like India might might seek to move out of that stage. Uh, what we saw in the U.S. was just uh, really, I would say, a political movement, very strong. Uh, back then it was called the progressive movement, but of course it was cutting across both parties. Teddy Roosevelt, for instance, uh, was a, a progressive in that same camp. He was a Republican. And then, of course, you had Democrats going against it as well. It was just a groundswell against uh, corruption in all forms, uh, but especially at the local levels and at the lower levels. Uh, And that really pushed a big change that we saw, uh, took several decades in the US for that to take place. 
Uh, and that really made a huge difference. Uh, it wasn't just institutional. You had people like, for instance, people like O. Henry writing stories about uh, uh, how people who cheat the system and try and go around it, uh, what the consequences are for those kinds of people, even if the law doesn't get them, something else will get them. In India, we have to start to, I would hope we, we will start seeing that uh, developing. There are already movements afoot and some political parties that are trying to do things. I wouldn't expect it to be uh, coming out of the courts, just like in the US, it wasn't really a stronger judiciary that, that cracked down on corruption in that respect. Uh, it was really a, a more popular movement. Uh, and we've got a ways to go till India is at that level of economic development where we would see a strong middle class that could demand uh, lower corruption. Also, one of the big challenges in India, as you probably know, is identity politics still plays quite a quite a strong uh, card in India. So when I've talked to uh, politicians and people who make strategies for elections, frequently it's basically between this, uh, they try to figure out what will market better, what will uh, do better for elections. And it's oftentimes uh, it's not so stark, but oftentimes people are con contrasting, say, good governance practices with identity politics. Uh, and to the extent that they use both, they do. But oftentimes, uh, at a more localized level, people are trying to figure out whether a village or a specific set of voters might play more with an identity-based message or with a good governance-based message. Uh, and to the extent that people get stuck on identity, uh, they want to vote for somebody who's going to take care of their community or somebody from their community. Uh, that hampers, it impedes what we might uh, expect for our good governance, uh, especially with corruption. And I think that's that's really one of the one of the like another um, one of those those things that is is can, can be quite challenging for people in the West to understand. Mm -hmm. um, because it, I mean, from an American perspective. Um, someone from um for example new york and someone from los angeles you know they, they have broadly similar cultures right they speak the same language right. they celebrate the same holidays and, and things like that so uh, there's nothing um in los angeles that would prevent um, them from voting for a politician from new york um but it's, it's quite a different story in india right um where you have a mix of very very ethnically and religiously diverse cultures um um all with their own languages you know they, they can't understand each other they have very very different cultures and so um is the solution to this just a, a whole bunch of devolution down from the central government to state governments and from state governments to to governments as localized as, as possible in a country that is so diverse from place to place well, I think the risk that you would have with devolution uh, is that you could see the country split into many different countries, right? And that's the same risk that, uh, yes, the U.S. does have some common features now, but you think about 1700s, 1800s, even 1900s, uh, uh, there was a lot more diversity of culture and you could have had the country split into many, many pieces. With India, you certainly don't have very good local level governance. Uh, a mayor of a town, for instance, it's not a very powerful position, even if you're a mayor of a big city like Mumbai or Delhi with 30 or 40 million people. Most of the power rests with the uh, state chief minister or with the in the national government with the prime minister. Uh, so I I don't know how much uh, how much less corruption you would see with devolution of power. I think there are other things that could be done uh, that might make the system work a little bit better. A lot of the uh, biggest decisions that are made in India uh, a lot of them are made by politicians, obviously, but a lot a lot of really significant decisions are made by an unelected class of bureaucrats. Uh, they come from this thing called the Indian Administrative Service, which is a legacy from the British colonial era. Uh, and the, those those people who run that service 
Uh, I've met several of them. They're nice. They're well-spoken. They're smart. But at the end of the day, they're unelected and they know they've got life appointments and they know that if they do within reason, uh, you know, a half decent job, they'll keep progressing up and up and up through the system. Huge amounts of power concentrated in these people. Uh, and they just don't have any level of uh, local accountability, uh, low level accountability. It's not like voters can ever throw these people out. They can't really easily be fired. Even politicians complain that these folks uh, aren't really uh, up to snuff. Oftentimes, they, they're not really accountable to politicians. We've even got fancy research papers that can show this stuff. Uh, and so we've got this strong, very powerful bureaucracy uh, with people who are, tend to be generalist experts, they're usually not uh, well-versed in any specific area. Uh, and you get these kinds of inefficiencies, uh, including corruption and bribery. Uh, again, it's not just an individual's fault or, or a specific set of people's fault, it's an institutional problem. And so if you think about where reform could be really promising, one area to start would be with the Indian bureaucracy, and especially this top-level bureaucracy. So. And I think this comes right back to the point about um, meritocracy uh, again, um, in that um, ensuring that every every position is given to the most qualified person instead of the person who's been here the longest or you know someone who who has the best connections or something like that. Absolutely. In this case, it's a uh, they're selected on what one might call a meritocratic process. There's a national level test that's given, and the top people who pass uh, that test. Uh, with some with some reservations made for ethnicity or for uh, state diversity, uh, the top people who pass that test end up going into the system. The problem with that system is uh, later on down the line, uh, once you start to really uh, come into much more senior levels of power, even in your late 20s, uh, that's when you start to really see a lot of uh, really powerful th- sorts of things happening. Uh, you don't really have strong incentives to really deviate from the course much or to take risks and to do things that might work out. It's really hard to change the system uh, from within. You see bureaucrats at that level uh, who, when they do try to go against corruption and bribery, uh, the system oftentimes uh, does discard them uh, and you end up in this problematic sort of situation. It's precisely because of a lack of meritocracy in that system at the middle and upper levels uh, it's precisely because of the problem with that, uh, with the institutional promotional structures and the incentives that these people have, uh, that you see such problems taking place. So, uh, what incentives are there for bureaucrats in, in places like the United States um, that, that prevent those those same if, um, inefficiencies from taking hold? Well, we don't have a very large bureaucracy in the U.S., firstly. Secondly, we tend to see a lot more specialized bureaucracies in the U.S., So for instance, if you're in, say, the Treasury Department, uh, you're going to have a finance background. If you're in India at a senior level, uh, you might be in finance one day, you might be in agriculture the next, you might be in defense, uh, you know, maybe not one day, one day, one day, but certainly over the course of your career, you could bounce around all of these different positions uh, uh, fairly easily. Uh, So uh, it's different in that respect. Also in the US, uh, people criticize it, but the revolving door the opportunity to go between private sector and the government and not just make a career out of rising up through the government, uh, I think makes actually quite a profound difference because then you get people within the US who think about private sector opportunities. You know, that's where you go to make your money, of course. But when you're in the public sector, you're doing a public service and you're, you're responsible and accountable for that. 
In the Indian government, they don't really have that tradition. So you're going to be a government officer and you could be a very, very powerful person, but you won't be making very much money uh, through your career. Of course, that's going to encourage you to think about outside opportunities uh, and nefarious activities where you can make that kind of money. Uh, so uh, that's something else. They've been talking a lot about lateral entry in the Indian bureaucracy, bringing in qualified experts who've made their careers within a specialized area who could come in and contribute to the Indian government in a meaningful way. I think that's a really promising area for reform uh, that could make the system much better. Okay, um, so moving on, I, I also wanted to talk to you about um, Indian immigration to the United States. Yeah. Um, so we've all heard horror stories about decades long waiting lists for green cards um, and moving to the United States for people in India tends to be immensely difficult. Um, yet, despite these barriers, Indian immigrants are, are one of the most successful groups in America, having the highest household income and educational attainment and so on. So I, I wanted to ask you whether the high barriers to immigration from India are necessary and effective, um, especially the way they're set up, given the positive externalities of such immigration on American society and what the United States should perhaps be doing differently in its approach. I think high-skilled immigration is a in an area where the U.S., if they fix it, if the U.S. fixes it, if we can get it right, uh, will really just trigger a revitalization of our economy. It's clearly very critical. Uh, uh, and that's not just from India, although India tends to be the, the country that gets the most H-1B applicants. Uh, if we can fix that, just I think the estimates for economic growth that would come from it would just be absolutely amazing. Uh, let me tell you a little bit, though. I guess I live in uh, the Bay Area. About 70% of my neighbors, I would estimate, are Indian. Uh, let me tell you a, a personal story about it and why it's not just uh, a great economic argument, but why it could also have uh, 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 something that goes beyond economic argument. Don't know how you feel about Im illegal immigration, uh, but we've got a lot of people here who have come, uh, children of H-1Bs, and they're born in the US, or they're born in India legally, uh, come here at the age of six months. Uh, because of the current process, uh, their parents won't be eligible uh, for green cards uh, till those kids are 20 or 30. Uh, and of course, when you're, 21, you're no longer eligible to be under your parents. You can't be sponsored by your parents. So we're going to have a number of kids here born legally uh, in another country, but have come here legally, who are going to become of age. Uh, and the, we're going to invest a lot in them. They're going to get some of the country's best education. And then at 21, they're going to have to either get a, a university to sponsor them uh, followed by an employer to sponsor them, or they're going to have to go to their home countries, which, of course, they haven't lived in their entire lives. Uh, we've got about 200,000 of these uh, folks already in the country right now, uh, legal dreamers. Uh, you can uh, say what you want about dreamers who have come into the country illegally, but in this case, these are legal dreamers who are in the country, and that's only going to explode. Uh, that's going to increase exponentially. Uh, about half of all of the Indian uh, migrants that we've got in this country have come since 2000. Uh, and so you can just imagine as, as their kids get older and older, uh, a lot of those kids are going to be in a very, very odd position. And we're going to send back a lot of really talented, really smart people who will have to leave this country if we don't figure out how to fix this high level of immigration. 
So it's it's quite an opportunity, I think, actually, politically speaking, if we can come up. I know people want to work for a comprehensive immigration bill where they figure everything out. But at the higher levels of immigration, um, I think it's there's just some relatively clear answers. Hopefully we can get some political consensus around them and and fix what we see right now. So what are the political barriers stopping this precisely? Because it, it seems to me like anyone that would, you know, have, take it, take even a minute to to understand this issue. It's hard to see how you could be against um, a, a policy um, or, or against this a system which deports or, or you know forces people to leave the country that, um, that 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 the United States has invested so much money in that are highly skilled. It, it just seems like it, it's in no one's benefit. So what? Absolutely. What what's stopping progress in this in this? Well, I, I think there's a lot of political pressure. I mean, immigration tends to be a third rail in American politics right now. There's a lot of political pressure for a comprehensive immigration plan. And so if you come up with one idea that seems like common sense to everybody, uh, people will say, oh, but I'm going to hold it up unless you give me something else that might be more politically divisive. And so for a lot of the uh, immigration talk right now, things like fixing H-1B, for instance, you know, Chuck Schumer, who created the, the lottery system, has come out against the lottery system for H-1B. Uh, and other politicians have as well. And, you know, they're, they're in line with their Republican counterparts on that. Uh, but of course, uh, if if Schumer gives up on that or if the Republicans give up on something else uh, and they just craft a narrow fix to an immigration issue, uh, that doesn't seem to pass because people want the whole package. They want to hold it up to try and get their other kinds of uh, related issues. And so we've got a really big challenge because we have to go basically for the whole enchilada. We have to get a comprehensive immigration package that's acceptable to all. And that just doesn't seem like uh, very tractable right now with the the debates we've seen, particularly in the last five years. Uh, I would love to see something where a couple of politicians got together and said, these are just common sense reforms and we need to do something. It just, there doesn't seem to be political appetite for that. Uh, 2013 or 2014, I think something was tried where the gang of eight senators tried to say, hey, look, here are some common sense solutions, things that we can all agree upon. And that was practically dead upon arrival or dead upon announcement. It didn't go very far. So it's a big challenge. It's it's a really sad challenge too. I think uh, on both sides uh, of the aisle, everybody would agree that immigration is is one of the biggest challenges facing this country right now. And if we can resolve it, uh, I think in in, in certain ways, uh, we would just see great economic upliftment, uh, stronger social cohesion, all of the things that you mentioned that, that would make uh, our country much stronger. So finally, I wanted to finish off by talking about U.S.-India relations. Um, so the role of India on the world stage has changed radically um, over the past three decades as it has experienced tremendous economic growth, becoming much more powerful and influential. Um, so I wanted to ask you what you think the geostrategic importance of India will be to the United States, given its positioning in the Indo-Pacific region, and if there's anything specific that should be done to strengthen diplomatic ties that may potentially benefit both nations going forward. Yeah, I think India... It, it, it's the strongest ally, or it's not an official ally, it's a partnership, uh, but its its interests in that region overlap with our interests uh, in very great ways, very excellent ways. Uh, India's got two nuclear threats on its border, Pakistan and China, uh, that uh, increasingly seem to have interests that are at odds with U.S. interests, and India's most immediate focus is in that 
the Pakistan-China threat, of course. Uh, but even beyond just its immediate borders, you think about what India did in Afghanistan and the amount of money that they invested uh, in uh, U.S. efforts to uh, uh, control the Taliban. India built the parliament in Afghanistan. A lot of people don't know that. And sent a number of uh, really good uh, troops as well as uh, uh, private individuals to help uh, with consolidating Afghanistan. India is also active in the Middle East. They just uh, formed a free trade partnership, a very important free trade partnership with the UAE and Israel, both uh, strong partners with the US in yeah. Middle East. Uh, and uh, in general, the India just seems poised. We share a tradition of democracy, a tradition of liberalism, uh, and we share, I think, just on a personal basis, a cultural affinity between the, uh, the U.S. and India. I think it's robust, and I'd like to see that relationship strengthen over the next uh, several decades. Now, what can the U.S. do in the short term to try and strengthen that relationship? Uh, uh, I think the Biden administration in particular uh, has fallen short in terms of what could have been done. Uh, we still don't have a confirmed ambassador uh, to India. Uh, the Secretary of State and the, the Defense Secretary have made a lot of overtures to India, uh, but they don't really have uh, the lower level administration in place, it seems like, yet quite yet to, to build strong relations. Uh, at the end of the Trump administration, it almost formed a mini trade pact. There was a lot more uh, traction going. There were a couple of defense deals in place uh, that were shaping up. And it seems like a lot of those, just uh, for better or worse, uh, when Biden started to reassess what the Asia policy should be uh, uh, and focus more on China and Taiwan, a lot of what was happening with India was put to the, to the background. I'd, I'd hope that the administration in the next few years will recognize the value of India. I think doing things like a strategic trade partnership, recognizing that uh, building up the Indian economy is in US interests, building up the Indian uh, defense uh, ability and particularly defense procurement is in U.S. interests. Right now, about 60 to 70 percent of India's weapons, you might have heard, come from Russia, which is just a dangerous, dangerous thing. It would be great if the Indians could buy U.S. equipment. They can't afford U.S. equipment. Uh, but I think the U.S. can play a role both in encouraging its allies to sell uh, more affordable equipment, as well as just helping India develop indigenous capabilities to produce this kind of military equipment. And in general, just supporting India on the world stage when uh, uh, India faces China on the border, uh, uh, clashes that they had previously, uh, the U.S. kept uh, sort of, uh, has historically sort of tried to not weigh in on that as much. Uh, between India and Pakistan, the U.S. is historically uh, sort of I would say in the last two decades, sided much more with Pakistan in terms of military uh, military weapons provision and just in, in general with the kind of language and the messaging that we've done. I think the U.S. now should shift over uh, to being a more forceful ally on the Indian side uh, at the expense of Pakistan. A lot of things like that, I think, just make a lot of sense. And I'm, I'm really hopeful that we will see some of these kinds of changes coming out in D.C. in the next four to ten years. So. Well, um, those are all the questions I have for you today. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate thank, it. Yeah. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.